following program is produced by the Align in the Sound team. If you like what you hear, please stick around at the end of the show. To find out more, contact us and contribute towards a positive future.
Cause you are what you eat And you are what what you eat eats And you're even what 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 you eat eats eats And it repeats 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 You're on Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM. You're listening to Behind the Lines. You're with Scotty, you're with Zena, and today on the, on the phone, on the dog and bone, all the way from, I don't know where actually, all the way from going to Sydney, I think it is, um, we have Charlie McGee and Brenna Quinlan. Now these two are a, uh, a dynamic permaculture duo. And uh, Zena. Yes. Did you have any intros for these guys? Oh, I do. And I, I have to say, I pinched some of it off their fabulous websites. <laughs> I love the descriptions there. So this week, we're going to be chatting with ukulele strumming, ecological edutainer, Charlie McGee, who's the main voice behind some of our most regularly played music on the show, the formidable vegetable sound system. So our regular listeners will be really familiar with these guys. And joining Charlie in conversation is illustrator and educator, Brenna Quinlan, who is the co-operator of Grow Do It Permaculture Education, which is a project focused on bringing climate solutions to kids and their grown-ups through art, music and creativity. So join us for a dynamic conversation today about permaculture and the arts and how we can help change a story that so much needs changing, as well as chatting about the Formidable's upcoming gig at Smith's Alternative tomorrow, which you don't want to be missing. So welcome to the show, Charlie and Brunner. It's lovely to have you with us this morning. G'day. Great. Now, um, Brenna, are you able to hear us there on the other line? So, uh, Brenna, just bear with us. We're going to have Charlie chat for a minute. We're just going to do a little bit of a jerry-rig here with your uh, line, phone line, to get a better quality of call. So, how did all this happen for you, Charlie? Where, where did you come from? Oh, that, that's, a, I, that's a question I ask myself all the time. Every day I wake up, I'm like, how did this happen? <laughs> well, I don't know how far back you want to start. I was born in the Northern Territory in 1983 to an American mother who ran away from the Cold War and, uh, and a, a father who was a wannabe hippie but then ended up as a school teacher. And, um, yeah, the, the rest is history, really. But um, as far as the band goes, uh, we've just had our 10th anniversary. 10th anniversary, really? Wow. Yeah, we uh, Woodford Festival um, on, oh, geez, just last weekend. It feels like an age ago. But, um, yeah, I realised we started... Ten years ago, after I'd finished my permaculture design course um, and decided that I just wanted to get the word out for, for you know, for want of a better uh, term, it's not. It, it was never the intention to be like an evangelical kind of you know perma preacher, but it was more like using music to get concepts out that people might not otherwise read about in books or you know choose to kind of kind of explore further and, and I just did a bit of an ecological edutainment experiment and um, turned a permaculture textbook into an album which then became Formidable Vegetable Yeah, right, so maybe we should uh, get to basics for people who, uh, who may not know what permaculture is, can you do a bit of definition for us? Yeah, well I mean, like my, my elevator pitches it's just applied common sense but, but unfortunately common sense isn't as common as it, as it once was Look, it's, it's an ecological design framework that can basically apply to any, any part of life. You know, it's, it's 
not just about gardening. A lot of people get get into permaculture through gardening and and uh, you know farming and regenerative ag and that kind of thing. But it's more of community building and uh, and making connections between different parts of living of a living system. It, it, it came about in the seventies. Well, the term permaculture came about in the seventies from Bill Mollison and David Holmgren writing a book about it. But the concept is actually much much older. It's based on a whole load of traditional knowledge from all over the world, from cultures that have proven themselves to be, you know, as close to permanent cultures as you can get. So, you know, none more permanent than, obviously, the people of this country called Australia. Um, but, you know, it's not, it's, not, it's not a rip-off of ideas. It's a synthesis of knowledge that has been put into a modern context with, you know, with attributions to all of the people who inspired it to help us get through this next chapter of human history, you know, the, the Anthropocene, as some people call it. Um, you know, we've got some massive challenges ahead of us, and for people to kind of have a framework or, you know, a bunch of frameworks and tools to get through the climate crisis or the ecological crisis or, you know, any number of crises that are, that are making life difficult for uh, people across the world, I think is a really valuable thing right now. So, yeah, that's that was kind of the inspiration behind it, and, um, and I've just put a ukulele and some beats to it, so hopefully we can take it to some more places. Yes, very interesting, very interesting. So, Brenna, we've got you joining the conversation now quite happily? Yeah, that sounds great. Um, so, how did you get involved? You're an artist. So, where did this where did this come from? You were also at um, David Holmgren's property Meliodora for a while, I believe. Yeah, and you know, it's such a wonderful place. If if anyone who's listening is near Central Victoria, near Dalesford, you can actually go there on tours once a month. So, they it's a one heck. Uh, one hectare, 2.2 acre property where they produce almost all of their own food and it's been running for 36 years as long as I've been alive. So there's some pretty mature systems there ticking along and it's real proof that you can live an abundant life in a really simple way, that living regeneratively doesn't have to be a compromise on happiness in any form. And, yeah, while I was living there, um, I'd always been an artist but it kind of suppress that side of myself because, you know, climate change is happening, biodiversity loss, injustice, inequality, all these big issues of our time are becoming more and more important. So I thought, well, I'll learn what I can about permaculture and start teaching that and that will be my thing. But I really missed art. And then a few months into my internship there, David asked me to illustrate his most recent book, Retro Suburbia, about living a regenerative life in the cities and suburbs, because that's where a lot of us live these days. Maybe we've got a small balcony, maybe we don't even have that. How can we meet some of our needs when when we're living in a city, an urban or suburban environment? So I illustrated his book and I thought, wow, this is actually a pretty nifty way to do a bit of activism, to get the message out there, but also use my art skills. So I started on that path. I've since illustrated for Costa Georgiadis, um, for Gardening Australia. I've done Milkwood's book, if you've heard of that crew. Yep. Worked with Stephanie we've had them Alexander, on the show. Yep. with um, Red Cross Climate Communities Foundation. All sorts of things. I get to collaborate with some of my heroes, which is exciting. And I thought, well, if I'm a permaculture illustrator, I've heard there's this permaculture musician, Charlie McGee. And <laughs> so we got talking and we got along really well. And now I'm weaseling my way into the band as DJ and I actually have a rap about the soil food web, which people's been coming to the gigs and been enjoying. So I think I've found 
my next passion in life, which is getting up on stage with a microphone. And maybe some album covers there as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's like, if, if anyone's doing something exciting, I'll, I'll call them up and say, hey, can I work with you? And Charlie was a great example of that. I said, you've got an album coming out. I'd, I'd love to illustrate it. So the album and there's a vinyl version as well, Earth People Fair, done, a, done an image of of kind of a forest being planted and then growing up the side of the of the album. Um, just, you know, showing how people can kind of plant a seed physically or metaphorically and, and create forests in their wake. It was actually an album cover that, that brought us together. Uh-huh. Uh, for which album? So, uh, Brett, I, we, I had a single called Grow a Garden come out a few years ago and I asked Brenda to do the cover and she drew a, she drew a cover that looked suspiciously like me and her being cute in a garden. And I was like, this is either cute or creepy. But I went with the former and, um, you know, it was, a, it was a sign of things to come. So <laughs> that was nice. I got away with that one. That's awesome. I'm just waiting for the album cover that you plant in the ground that turns into has seeds embedded in it, turns exactly. into a garden, exactly. right? Exactly. <laughs> it's magic. So there's no waste. Yeah. Oh, I love you it. You've got to be careful what you draw. Yeah. You guys are actually building a house together, is that right? Mm. Yeah, we're, um, we moved back to WA at the start of last year. I'm actually from WA, to, to answer your first question of where we're from anyway. Um, but, yeah, Brenna was living in, in Fix for about four years, and uh, when I finally went home in, at the end of 2020, I was just like, oh, you know what, WA's home, but I can't see. I, I guess I'm living in Victoria now because that's where my partner lives. And uh, out of the blue, Brenda just said, hey, I think I might move to WA. And we found a bit of land on a permaculture community in the south coast, and we absolutely love it. And we're building a little straw bale house. We currently live in a tiny house on the back of an old truck, which is, you know, cosy enough for now. It's pretty deluxe, actually. But, um, yeah, we're building a little straw bale and, and, and getting into community there. So it's nice to have the balance of touring life and community life so we can actually practice what we preach. And um, that's really important to us as well. Do you find that inspires your music too? Like the the, the fact that you're living this life that that you are, um, you know, an activist for. You're actually engaged. In it. Does that inspire your creativity, your art, and your music? Oh, totally. And it's it's really important to me because I spent seven years touring and not having a home, and it just it just ate away at me. I was like, come on, like when am I going to have time to actually have a garden? And now. We've got that balance, you know, we've got a piece of land that we can garden on and we can, you know, we've got a community we can be a part of and go and sing about it. So it kind of adds this extra little oomph to the tunes and it's like, yes, we're singing about this and we're doing it and it's possible and you can do it too. So, so the yeah. question I have is, do you sing to the garden and to the <laughs> components of the permaculture garden, like if you've got bees or you've got geese or anything like that involved in the in the cycle? Do you sing oh, well, to that, them? That always helps. That definitely helps. And, you know, they sing back as well. You know, okay. the latest album I actually recorded in a, in a rickety, uh, not soundproof caravan out in the, in, the, uh, in the bush just above our block. And I'm pretty sure there's a few black cockatoos and ducks and chickens and, you know, various other animals kind of contributing to the songs as well. So it works both ways. I also actually sampled some real goat sounds in the song Goat. Um, from uh, Her name was Chia and she was quite a vocal goat. So we ran around with a, with a mobile phone trying to get some... Some real life, real life action shots of her um, bleating, so you can hear that little goat. Mm, and that's a pretty whacked out film clip too. That one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a bit weird. <laughs> 
But it's awesome. I mean, you guys have done some extensive travelling with the band, you know, like you've... And not, without the band yes, as well. Yes, but not just, you know, like local Australian festivals. You've um, played at Glastonbury a few times as well. Yeah, we did Glastonbury three times and... Oh man, that was a that was all a blur. Like <laughs> kind of like you know Woodstock. If you remember it, you weren't there. But no, it was just because we'd be on tour for seven years nonstop and whizzing around the globe. And yeah, Glastonbury was incredible. But in 2019, they offered us to play again, and I actually said no because I just I couldn't consolidate the concept of flying internationally for tours anymore. I just you know I'd read the IPCC report. I'd been reading about the climate crisis. And, you know I'd been watching fires just burning and, and the world kind of going into chaos and I just thought you know this, the irony is too much and I actually cancelled the world tour and said no to Glastonbury which apparently no one had ever done before so we got more press from doing that than actually playing <laughs> from not showing up well yeah, I was going to ask BBC you about did it because <laughs> it was four years you guys elected um, not to fly to any gigs right yeah yeah I mean I didn't put an end date on it and basically you know, we didn't fly. I, I took a year off flying in 2016, and then I did one more tour, and then after that I was like, nah, no more. And then, then COVID happened, so, you know. Made it, <laughs> it easy. Cool. But you could do the Greta thing where she got on the got on the boat, right, and sailed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been looking into that. In fact, one crazy guy from the States got in touch after an interview with the BBC and said, oh, I just read about you. you're not flying to Glastonbury, can I organise you a land-based tour of the world and you can drive your veggie oil truck around the world? And I was like, I'm not sure how I feel about that, but yeah, maybe. And then, you know, then the world shut down, so that was no longer an option. But I think there's an option there to be on the ocean, to sort of tie in the whole thing about, you know, healthy oceans where you could be, you know, maybe sailing to a gig and, I don't know, somehow tying the music into that. Yeah, well, if you know anyone with a boat, let us know. Yeah, and it has to be a sailboat. It's got to be wind-powered, right? Exactly, so got, yeah. Yeah. Hmm, yeah. And it's got to be able to take a goat on the boat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and it's got to float, and uh, you've got to vote. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe you can put it to a vote of all the, all the, uh, and there's, the there's, listeners. And there's your next rap piece, Brenna. <laughs> Inspiration. This is awesome. <laughs> yeah. So, back to you, Brenna. You, you say that you eat ice cream for a job. <laughs> well, it's when I was growing up, I I loved drawing, and I just thought it was so much fun. And somebody told me when I was aged, I don't know, seven or eight, that you could actually study art legitimately and then go on to work as an artist. And I was in such disbelief that something. So that was so much fun, akin to eating ice cream or patting puppies, could actually be a career path. So I didn't believe them um, until I got a little bit older and you know studied art at university. I actually went to Italy and studied portraiture there, and portraiture was really my path. I was I was going to do the gallery thing and sell art to people with money, and that's when <laughs> eventually I started learning about permaculture and climate solutions and realised that that wasn't the path that was going to necessarily bring me happiness um but I, yeah I still thought art was as much fun as eating ice cream and so grateful that I kind of figured out how to use my thing my favorite thing in the world for good instead of evil and that's part of what we talk about in permaculture and in in our gigs and also in my drawings is finding what your one thing is and the thing that really makes you come alive that brings you happiness that uses your skills and overlaying that with something meaningful. So we see so many people who are 
bringing good messages to teaching. They're playing Charlie songs to the kids or to their homeschool networks or to their families. Um, I've got a friend who works in one of the big banks and she started printing out my drawings and sticking them up in the coffee room. They're all zero waste now, um, sticking them up in the bathrooms. They've actually implemented a few compost toilets out the back so that people can use those if they want to. So really making change where you are with what you already do, with what you already already enjoy. I love that when we started this show, you said originally you um, thought that you couldn't do your art. <laughs> And then your art has become such a pivotal piece of um, how you're communicating and reaching out and connecting with everyone. Seems like like an age ago now, but there were a few years there where art was kind of my best kept secret. No one really knew that that was what I had done ever since I was old enough to hold a crayon. Um, And I had a couple of people, you know, somehow find out, oh, yeah, Brenna's an artist. And that's actually how... I got the gig of illustrating Retro Suburbia. I told one person at a party once that I'd made a uh, an, an image for my, my brother's birthday and I showed him. And a year later he remembered and then recommended me for the book. <laughs> it was just such a chance, fleeting encounter that my life took on this path. But I'm really lucky that it did. Mm. Isn't that the saying? We're always trying to do what we're meant to contribute to the world. We're trying to do it in some form, no matter what job description we have, you know, in, in a sort of a... Uh, career-based or uh, occupation-based, you're always still trying to make your contribution that you came here to do. Yeah, and it takes a lot of courage too, you know, to to do that because it's not always profitable. And I think there's a difference between, you know, making the making the bling bling and um and making your heart sing. You know, it's like a friend of mine said um, to me when I was sort of doing my permaculture course. Said, don't don't ask yourself. What you know? What do I need to do? What's what's the thing that I have to do for the world that you know is my job? It's like ask yourself what makes you come alive. Yeah. Because what the world needs is people who've come alive, and and you know we we just we feel really lucky that we both work in something that makes us come alive, and the, and it and it works. You know, it pays off both you know financially in the end, but also getting it out there to the places that we need to. You know, Brenna's artwork is all over the place, as you just heard, and. And you know, even like at Woodford Festival, where we just were, you know, we had we had uh, one of your fellow Canberrans, uh, the Minister for the Arts, Tony Burke, get up and play guitar in one of our songs oh, wow. about Earth Care, and just to have that, you know, both ways interaction with people who work in completely different areas, um, you know, inspiring everybody and and getting the message out, just feels like such a great place to be. We, we mm. Now you've you've made a career out of working with a whole lot of different other musos so you've got your your sort of core formidable vegetable people but you can also tour solo can't you how do you manage that with a band well that's where the sound system comes in we used to be called formidable vegetable sound system because basically what it is i mean i just dropped the sound system because who needs 10 syllables in a band name but um we've we've um got these radish beats we call them um which is just uh, electronic um you know backing track that we can add or remove members as 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 we see fit so whoever can't make it to a gig ends up playing inside the beatbox and, and then when they when they're in real life we we just magically extract them and they, they're performing live so yeah i can do a, a solo show with the band but it's obviously you know sort of more of an electronic doof set and uh but right now we're touring with mal webb and kylie morrigan who are amazing live musicians in their own right they've they've actually got their own act which is incredible and uh, yeah so the gig at smith's will be playing as a four piece and yeah still with the backing track so it'll be 
it'll be a pretty fat, bassy, dancey experience too for anyone who's who's used to seeing that. Cool. And just describe Mal Webb for us, because I don't think there would be two Mal Webbs on this earth. Describe Mal Webb. Is that, that's like the question for a, uh, a PhD, I think. Um, Mal Webb is a multi-instrumentalist, beatboxing, looping enigma of, of intrigue. And, uh, you know, he's, he's, I was a fan of Mal's for about 10 years before he joined Formidable Bitch. And he's, he sings, he writes songs about everything from, like, the physics of sound to giant endangered earthworms and, and, and everything in between. But, like, he's got this passion for turning extremely nerdy topics into extremely nerdy songs. And he'll, he'll go to great lengths to explain, you know, everything about the song so that, you know, we're all on the same page. And then he'll just, he'll just start beatboxing and yodeling into his loop pedal and turn it into this orchestra of, of awesomeness. And his partner, Kylie Morrigan, is just as bent. And she plays violin and sings as well. And together they, they loop and they, they build these entire worlds around, you know, any number of concepts. It, 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 you just have to see it. You just have to believe it. <laughs> They'll blow your mind. And, yeah, anyone who's seen Mel before will know exactly what I'm talking about. So then everyone's got to go Google Mel now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, do it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I love that we can hear the wildlife in the background too, Charlie. That, yeah, yeah, we're currently at the beautiful Narara Eco Village on ah. the central coast. And surrounded by rainforest and birds. And, Is there no, some rainbow lorikeets I can hear going in the background? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Well done. Yeah, no, I know their sound. I used to live up that way, so, yeah. Beautiful. They mm. always used to amaze me, though. At sunset, they gather en masse by the hundreds in their roost, whatever yeah. trees they've chosen. And oh. you, they're really loud. And then as the sun starts to sink, they get quieter and quieter and quieter. And just as the sun dips below the horizon, it all goes silent. Have you noticed You that? know, the other night, they were they were drowning out the gig. They were so loud. Up in When we were in Ipswich, <laughs> there was like a cloud of rainbow lorikeets yeah. that came in. And just they were just, they were like, nah, the show's us tonight. We're, yeah. we're the main act. <laughs> Sorry, band. <laughs> yeah. Now, Brenna, back to you. Like, like a lot of Aussies have... You learnt about permaculture in Chile in Spanish. <laughs> yeah, I did that thing that a lot of Aussies do do. I finished university and thought, oh, I'm not quite sure what I'm doing with myself. So I got a cliched one-way ticket to India, actually. So I'm never coming back, or at least not till I found my purpose in life. And I ended up um, in Canada on a working visa. Keen to go to South America and see what that was all about and not keen to fly. So I had that in common with Charlie before years before we met each other. So I actually hopped on a bicycle and rode 11,000 kilometres from Vancouver in Canada all the way through the United States and through Central America too. So countries like Costa Rica, Honduras, uh, Guatemala. There's a lot of hills in Guatemala. I can attest to that. And <laughs> landed in Panama then gave my bike away to a local, skipped over to South America and started um, travelling, hiking with friends, um, had a motorbike for a little while and and volunteering in as many places as I could. And all the places that seemed to have best balance, the happiest people, um, the tastiest produce, <laughs> They were the places that were talking about this thing called permaculture. So it really piqued my interest. Um, people were also talking about those big issues that I found so important. It was a really vibrant and exciting couple of years. And I ended up at a place 
called El Manzano, which means the apple tree, in Chile that teaches permaculture design courses. So this is a two-week-long intensive course. Some people um, offer it part-time as well over a few weeks. And it's offered all over the world. And a lot of people who say they do permaculture have done this course. Millions and millions of graduates over the past three decades have gone through this course. And it's a real life-changing moment for almost everybody. Charlie's done it. That's why he does what he does now. And it changed so much for me. And it was it was kind of like, imagine that feeling when you're a kid of waking up on Christmas morning. It was like that every day for two weeks for all of us. We're learning about biology, ecology, system thinking, uh, alternative economics, soil science, just all of the great things in life and then how we can apply them as um, designers, permaculture designers, to the physical spaces around us, but also the social skates as well. So I, I did my permaculture design course in Spanish, I did speak Spanish, and then we started teaching, me and a few other South American people, teaching permaculture over there and also in Brazil, in Portuguese, which was another tongue twister that I had to try to get my head around. I was better at speaking Portuguese than the Argentinian friends I had, so I became the official, unofficial translator for our permaculture courses. Oh, that's amazing. Um, and that was before your time at Meliodora, right? So Meliodora was kind of the progression on from this? Yeah, I came back home after six years overseas, um, came back to be closer to my family and once I got back on Aussie soil, I thought, oh, I know that, you know, the, the permaculture guys are from Australia, but I'd never met them. I didn't know anything about sustainability or permaculture when when I was in Australia. So I had a look and um, one of the co-originators, Bill Mollison, had just passed away the week that I got back to Australia. And the other co-originator, David Holmgren, was still alive and well living in Victoria. So I went along, knocked on his door and said, can I intern here? I'm looking to learn what I can about permaculture. And they said, all right. <laughs> and that's how that happened. And I ended that's up spending David's four partner, years Sue Dennett, learning right? how to grow veggies and teach permaculture properly and all, you know, that whole that whole journey it was a really steep learning curve but wow so much fun to learn from people who've been doing it for so long and what I find fascinating about the whole permaculture concept is we're trying to teach ourselves how to go back to supporting and creating um, the cycle of life the way it was originally intended like we're, we're trying to unlearn all the damage that we've done and, and all the, the mistakes that we've made and the things that we have not listened to when, you know, nature's been trying to tell us how, how something should be or the way it needs to be done. And it's like going back and just sort of re, relearning what was already in place. Yeah, and you ask any person on the street if they care about things and they'll say they deeply care. If you look at any child or any person, a butterfly is going past, people will look. We are animals of our ecosystem we are engaged we do care but society has set it up that we kind of worship the god of money and obviously have bills to pay we have to be on the treadmill it's really hard to break out of that so permaculture is one of many tools in in the toolkits that we can make available to ourselves that helps us take a step off the treadmill for a little while uh, in a way that really nourishes us as well as nourishing the community around us and also the land around us too because it it feels good to plant a tree it feels really good to lower our emissions and take care of some of our needs it's it's not a kind of hair shirt kind of existence it's 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 a more natural existence for people to be more connected with um 
with our needs and, and also to give back a little bit. We don't have to always be a force for evil as humans. <laughs> People can actually leave a trace in a positive way and that's what permaculture helps us to achieve. But that's an aliveness piece that um, you guys are both talking about, especially Charlie, when you said, you know, like that whole thing of if it energizes you, you want to move towards it, right? Well, that's not just on a, an emotional level, but you've got all the microbes in the soil and everything energizing you as well and kind of rebalancing you. So the more aliveness in your soil, the more aliveness in you. Yeah, totally. Like, uh, I mean, as Costa always said, you know, if you eat food that's alive, what does that make you? And the kids always go, more alive. <laughs> like, if you eat food that's dead, what does that make you? And they go, more dead. <laughs> you know, you break down that simply. It's true. You feed the soil and that feeds the entire system, you know. And it comes back to connecting with the country, where we are, you know, and, and honouring that care that's been put into the country, you know, ever since before white people came to this country. You know, like, if... If, if we're serious about acknowledging country and acknowledging traditional owners and, and people of this land and, you know, having a voice to parliament and all that stuff, I feel like the best thing everyone can do is to just listen to the land and live in alignment with the laws of nature, you know, which, which is basically what most traditional knowledges all over the world is, is based on. And you're absolutely right. It's about getting back to a way of living that, that doesn't impact beyond our means. And so, you know, I, I think it, it is moving back in a, in, a, in a sense, but it's also moving forward with, you know, the knowledge that's available that we can all kind of synthesise together to create new systems that, you know, that can be used to care for the country. So it goes a lot deeper than just gardening. And, and it really is about building connections, you know, both with the land and with people. Because if we don't have people care in there, then, you know, how can we work together? Charlie, I'll just get you to move a little bit closer to the microphone again, or if you're standing near Brenna, maybe move away. Oh, hello. Getting a bit of an echo. Yep. You sounded like you're in a cave there. <laughs> but, you know, you guys are both in education as well. This is the piece that I'd love to see really take off, is that if we could incorporate, you know, permaculture or something along those lines in the education of really young kids so they grow up normalising this. You know, like less screen time, more garden time, whatever it takes. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, how, how many kids have you met that, that have no idea how to grow food or don't well, even know? Well, there's a lot that don't get exposed to it. And yeah. I, I don't think it's that they don't know how. I mean, every every kid that we've seen or talked to or, you know, and done workshops with at schools get the principles. Like, they, they just get it intuitively. I think everyone knows intuitively how to grow something and how to how to care for the land and how to, you know, just take care of each other. But, but I think there just needs to be more exposure to that. And if, if you give the option of like, oh, hey, go and play a game on a screen for an hour or, hey, let's get outside and go and explore the garden, you know, then there's that option there to actually engage and, and get your hands dirty and get grubby, as Dirt Girl talk says, uh, you know, on that, on that beautiful TV show for kids. But, um, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a tricky one because we're so surrounded by tech and screens and it's all it's touted as the next big thing and yeah let's let's all you know go online and it's tricky because that stuff is helpful to a point but we've got to keep that connection to the real you know grassroots hands in the dirt experience of living in the world as well so um yeah i think there's there's a big challenge ahead for kids and and we just want to get in there and and give that option to you know to get outside and connect. Mm. Now you're you're very 
in amongst the permaculture community and quite connected. Do you know what's happening in East Timor? Just a random question, because I remember hearing not so long ago that East Timor had added permaculture to its school curriculum. Yeah, look, we were hoping to get over to East Timor a few years ago, and I haven't, I haven't been too connected in the last few years, but last I heard, they, they were actually one of the only countries in the world to have included permaculture in the year, you know, kindergarten to year 12 syllabus for their education um, curriculum. And, and that, that was partly um, thanks to a friend of ours, Lockie, who worked over the permaculturist from South Australia, who worked in East Timor for a long time, with a guy called Ego Lemnos, who's, um, who's a big you know, representative of permaculture in East Timor. And they were just advocates from the word go. And obviously, as they were rebuilding after the, you know, the whole conflict over there, they had this opportunity to integrate it into the education system and I'd love to go over and and see what's happening because I've heard there's some incredible things but yeah we haven't been over there yet so uh yeah it'd be good to good to see Mm, well maybe we should have a chat with those two guys eh totally at some point well then we've got the folks that are doing the permaculture for the refugees as well Mm -hmm. right incorporating Mm -hmm. that into refugee camps yeah we had Morag and Roe on talking about the permaculture for refugees (laughs) oh they're legends Mm, amazing stuff and that's the one thing I think we can all get together on on the planet is the you know the ability to grow food, the understanding and knowledge around growing food um, is intrinsic to us as human beings forming community, right? So whether we're foraging and we're doing sort of more of a gathering style, or whether we're actually doing agriculture and, and creating you know sort of larger harvesting of food, you know this is something that humans have intrinsically done since they've been on the planet into some form. Um, I think this is probably one of the biggest steps we could take into bringing people back together that have been separated by so many conflicts and so many disparaging views and, you know, just the struggle that the planet's facing. Like we, need to, we need a connection point. Like Scotty talks about co-ops a lot, and, and I think in some ways permaculture is probably the original co-op. Mm, yeah, and there's a saying, permaculture is a revolution disguised as gardening, and that <laughs> rings true in more developed more privileged countries but or in more privileged populations of more developed countries I should say but if we're looking at a global level um, most people don't fall into that category and so growing your own food is a really powerful symbol for people it is a really powerful act it means that you're not relying on centralized distribution networks you're not relying on what can be quite uh, fragile supply chains, globalised supply chains. You're not relying on what people say you should eat or on um, the cheapest thing on the shelf that's been made for a long shelf life or for the ability to travel um, by ocean over long distances. You're eating what grows well in your soil at your home for free. And so most people in the world benefit from that in more ways than we can even imagine and even here you know what you're saying about food brings people together yeah we you know what do we do at christmas we have people over and we have a meal together what do we do at a birthday we have a special meal for somebody food is a real important part of heart and culture and the kind of the life of a place of a community and if we're growing that and sharing it it adds in an extra dimension um it, you know that person that comes over to a to a potluck or a, a dinner and they say oh, i baked this cake myself and you think wow that's so much more special than if they bought it how wonderful it mm-hmm. kind of sticks in your mind or here's a salad from my garden 
oh, and how good does that salad taste? So growing a few things, even if you're starting out and it's only a few salad greens and some herbs because, let's face it, they're the most expensive things to buy and they don't last very long in a fridge. So it makes a lot of sense to put them in a pot at the back door in a sunny spot. That can change your next meal by having something that you've grown with your own hands. And the food tastes different too. Like for people that have never had homegrown food or haven't had access to, you know, garden fresh food, the flavours are so different. And, you know, most people who are into cooking will tell you that. But you you got to places that have food deserts. Like we have a lot of those in some of our regional communities in Australia where there's through drought and various other reasons there's a food desert or even, you know, major cities, especially in North America, you would have seen like Detroit's a classic food desert where people had never seen a banana. The kids had never seen a banana because they didn't know what a lot of these foods looked like because there was no access to fresh food. And then there's this gentleman, I can't remember his name. He's an ex-police officer, I think. And he started this massive community garden in the middle of Detroit and started growing food and bringing all the neighbors, like this was in really sort of low-income, rougher neighborhoods and bringing all the kids in to see where the food came from and teach them how to grow food. And, and that transformed their diets and then that transformed how they chose to live their lives. I mean, this, this one garden just became you know, for the inner city of Detroit became this huge transformative experience. So, you know, the the power of growing your food has um, so much more to it than just the consumption of the food. Yeah, like like Ron Findlay, the the self-proclaimed gangster gardener, says, growing your food is like printing your own money. (laughs) You know, he's talking about gardening up on the verges of south-central LA and just, you know, the work that people are doing all over the world is you know in this space is just incredible and and as Brenna said you know it it really it's it's the difference between you know life and death for some people and and a healthy life or an you know an unhealthy life and and it's you know while it might be seen as sort of like a luxury or a nice thing to do in the community in Australia it's really making a difference in in a lot of countries and especially you know the work that Morag and Roe are doing around refugees and um you know in you know in countries in continents like Africa and the Middle East you know it's just a whole other level. So, um, yeah, it goes deep. Mm, I mean, you've been involved in that a little bit. I believe that you know how to say pirate banana in Swahili. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, well, come on. Tuna aina nyingi zandizi, tuzilinde ne panda, hatutaki zili zoba dilish wa nasaba, tuna uhuru akuchegua. <laughs> that was a lot more than pirate banana there. Sure. <laughs> it was a, a song we wrote um, when I was staying with Vandana Shiva in India, and uh, it was a campaign against the the privatisation of genetics, as in you know the the GMO uh, crops that are being developed. You know, it's a big argument, and it's, it's a controversial one because some people are like, look, GMOs are great; they solve problems with drought and with disease and pests. But at the same time, you know, big companies are going in and taking the traditional property of, of indigenous people or, or, you know, small communities and and copywriting it and monetizing it for, you know, for profit. Well, yeah, when you make it illegal so, to save your own seeds, that's really concerning. Well, yeah, exactly. So we, did, we had this campaign a few years ago kind of challenging the uh, the GMO banana, which um, was being developed at the time by, well, by uh, UQ, actually, and in, in conjunction with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and um, you know, there was it was kind of found that well, actually, you know, these these folks went into and small community in, in um, I think the Solomon Islands found a, a banana that had been you know lovingly cultivated over thousands of years, took it and decided that they'd splice the genes into the Cavendish to you know solve Panama disease or uh, or some other you know 
banana-related disease, and uh, and as a result, you know, created this intellectual property under, you know, those laws which which equated to basically pirating a uh, you know the commons, which which was something that was free to everyone prior to that. So yeah, we wrote this song, Pirate Banana, which ironically we've never released because it ripped off two songs, <laughs> so, which which were in uh, which which have actually gone out of copyright. So it was um. It was uh, Yes, We Have No Bananas um, by, uh, oh, I can't remember even the name of the person who wrote it. That's terrible. And, um, and the Day-O uh, Banana Boat oh, song yeah. from Harry Belafonte, which apparently was also ripped off. So <laughs> it was like this ironic double rip-off of some songs that have been ripped off about a banana that was ripped off. There's another song in that about the rip-off banana, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, culture, that, that brings up the question of culture and... You know, who can own culture? Just like who can own the natural world? It's a concept that that is pretty recent, actually. And it kind of ties in with this Cartesian divide of like, oh, man versus nature, and we're separate from nature. It's like any traditional culture ever will tell you that you can't own nature or ideas or you're culture. You're a custodian. Just, yeah, that's all you are. Yeah, you're, you're a carer for it, and you're proliferated, and, and you spread it. The idea is to make it available to as many people as possible, not to hoard it and accumulate it for your personal gain. And so I think that's at the heart of you know what I'm passionate about, is bringing back the common, the common wealth that we all have on this beautiful planet and making it abundant and caring for it and making more of it so that the future generations have something, you know, instead of... A bunch of people with uh, with fancy caravans, and uh, <laughs> but then you've <laughs> got like a, a situation where now, like officially, Bill Gates is the largest owner of farmland in the world. Yeah, like, he and, just you know, bought up everything, and you that's know, happened. Gene Reinhardt as well, yeah. Boris, all the billionaires. You know, water and land is the next big thing as far as the capitalists go, and that's a real worry because you know the more that gets taken away from farmers and people who actually interact with the land, I think we're really playing with fire because, you know, it's, it's coming from this extractive paradigm of let's, you know, keep the shareholders happy, let's make as much money as we can off this land as possible. And, you know, even though buzzwords like regenerative agriculture and sustainability are being thrown around as sort of the, the drivers behind it, it really is about the bottom line. And I think the only thing that, that can do, you know, that can make a difference for the, for the country is connecting people who have connections to country already, you know, indigenous people, farmers, people on the land and communities. So, yeah, I think there needs to be a, a big um, a big resistance to that. Well, you get situations like when you have these billionaires owning the majority of farmland and they get very interested in monocultures because that's the most profitable thing for them. Yeah. And then, like, I remember seeing a documentary about why we don't have the variety of potatoes that we used to have, especially in the United States, because the company Frito-Lay that makes potato chips found that only a particular variety of potato was really good for their chips. So they basically made it so that all the potato farmers, if they wanted to stay farming potatoes, had to grow this one variety of potato. Uh, for yeah. Frito Lay, you know, it's just <laughs> it, it seems insane. And then the other thing they would do was also pay farmers to destroy their crops. Yeah, and there was a whole thing going on last year which didn't get a lot of news coverage, and it should have. Which was, you know, especially in the states, this was happening more prevalently, where farmers were being paid by major corporations to actually destroy their crops, perfectly good crops. Yeah, and you know, it comes down to what Vandana Shiva calls the monoculture of the mind. Yeah. You know, it's this mindset that we, we just need... There's one solution, there's one silver bullet to solve all the world's problems and 
we can come in with all of our resources and money and solve the problems. We can save the world. Mm-hmm. And I think that just ties into this, this monoculture of the mind and this, this thinking that there's some way, there's some easy way out that we don't have to actually do any work. And, um, you know, I think that's a really tricky one to get around. But, but the answer to me comes back to communities and diversity. And the more that we can empower communities, you know, if you're a billionaire, give a few billion dollars to a few communities to, uh, to work out their own problems because they're probably more, um, you know, competent in actually dealing with them than someone from, you know, yeah, the other side a, of the world. Yeah, than a think tank that's completely separated from yeah, you know, and, you know, experience. Exactly. I mean, I know we, we have some wicked problems globally now as a result of globalisation. The climate crisis being one of them and, you know, caused by these massive corporations such as fossil fuel companies that are pumping pollution into the atmosphere. But at the same time, the solutions aren't going to come from the top down. They've got to, they've got to be both ways. You know, we, we, have to, we have to come together as communities and we have to be empowered as communities to build the world that we want to see in the shadow of the old one. Brenda's got a beautiful image about that on her, uh, on her Instagram page. And, you know, it's, it's sort of all hands on deck, but we can't have this one-size-fits-all mentality and we, we've got to embrace diversity and we've got to realise that, you know, like the hubris that humans can come to the rescue... I think needs to go out the window because because nature has more wisdom than than any one individual person on this planet, and you know we just got got to kind of be a bit more humble, I think, and and then get down and do the work. Well, you you touched on it there, Charlie, because you know um, the opposite of humble is arrogance, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. this is what we're dealing with. We're dealing with the the arrogant side of humanity that. Um, thinks it is the all-powerful being and it's forgotten that there's a creative force that's far more intelligent and powerful than we are. And we are that creative force as well, you know, <laughs> we're a part of it. As, as a community, we are an organism and as, as, a, as an ecosystem, you know, an ecosystem is an organism. Like, it, it, yeah, it, it really scales up the more you look at it and nobody is an individual or apart from that. It's not like we need to just go and bury our heads and be like, oh, humans are so terrible. We actually are agents of change, but we can only do it if we realise the connections between us and work together rather than as individuals. I think that's what it comes down to for me. Mm, well, for me, <laughs> for us, the well, irony. I think what both of you guys are actually doing now is, is you're professional storytellers telling the story of permaculture to the world um, in ways that it hasn't really been done before. Well, that's where art comes in, you know. I think, yeah, Bren could probably talk a bit more about that. Yeah, it's, uh, they they talk about waves of permaculture, and so the first one was really in the 1970s when the first book came out. When David and Bill wrote that first book, Permaculture One, they were approached by 15 mainstream publishers. So this is a radical academic and an unknown university undergrad put a book together together uh, told nobody and 15 publishers came and approached them for their book that is absolutely unheard of the publishing industry i mean it's changed a lot but even then it was really hard to get into so these were radical ideas right place right time you've got rachel carson making silent scream you've got the club of rome um with the limits to growth report the 70s a lot of movement happening and the 80s kind of squashed the enthusiasm a bit in the uh late 90s early 2000s there was a second wave of permaculture and environmentalism, sustainability. We were planting uh, native trees on all the verges in Australia. Um, we were talking about Aboriginal rights and, and women's rights as well and and social justice kind of edge was coming back. 
And then it kind of slowly petered out again into the 2000s. And now we're here in 2023 with a massive third wave of understanding, awareness, environmentalism. You know, when, when you mentioned children before, we teach adults and children all the time. And so when we go in to do a school workshop, the sophistication of the knowledge and awareness of young children these days is often above and beyond that of of what we see in adult workshops. I am constantly astounded by what these kids know and how passionate they are about the big issues. Because back in my day, we were kind of sort of talking about recycling and a bit of put your rubbish in the bin, clean up Australia sort of messaging, but it never really extended further than that. But these kids are doing school projects on all these big issues and they're really focusing on what they can do in their communities, their school communities, and then, you know, looking looking to the future as adults. They're, pre- they're being prepared for, for this new world that we're inheriting. So Charlie and I, as kind of the younger contingent of the permaculture movement, riding this third wave, are bringing the message, whether you call it permaculture or sustainability or regeneration or what have you, we're bringing that message to people in in these creative ways because we see that that works. We see that through music and through art, um, people are really engaging with the issues positively. And so that's been keeping us busy and I'm really excited to see these kids coming up. They'll be the fourth wave and they're going to do it way better than us. So that's that's something to look out for. Mm. What I'm seeing is a lot of the people who, like yourself, started off just doing the thing and learning about it yourselves and then eventually becoming educators that's where the demand has been like there's been a real cry out for people to teach the knowledge to share the knowledge the same way we're turning to um you know to first nations and asking them to share their knowledge with us now out of respect of realizing they had it figured out you know thousands of years ago and uh, and we if we want to stay on the planet and thrive on the planet then we need to to learn these things we need to um, learn how to speak planet speak yeah that's exactly right and you know people who are running permaculture design courses that two-week course that i mentioned before i've found in the last couple years since we've come out of lockdowns that instead of doing one course a year, there's enough demand to do two or three courses a year. So this is happening all over the world. People are so ready for these messages. People are thinking, you know, what can I do? Like I said before, you ask anyone on the street and everybody cares. So it's an exciting time. This is the decade of change. We're living in it. We're here. We're doing our bit. Um, it's, it's. I mean, it's amazing. I wanted to mention it's amazing the focus that you have in your work on this station Um the kind of the lens through which you're you're seeing the world and the the points that you've brought up in this interview is really great to hear too. So thank you for doing your bit. <laughs> well, we love it exactly. You said about things that give you energy, but just on statistics, just so you guys know that the two um, shows that have had the most replays and and had the most our widest listening audience and the most engagement with one was the interview we did with David Holmgren, and two was a show we did on Verge Gardening during COVID. <laughs> and, you know, like generally we're not known as a gardening show but it was those are the two things that people wanted more of mm. now, well they can get more of it this uh, weekend at Smith's Alternative because we'll be rolling into town to uh, play for you all yeah, and will you be yeah. rolling into town on your vegetable fired vehicles vegetable uh, unfortunately fuel fired we don't vehicles? have a vegetable truck anymore but yeah we're, we're just kicking around in a, in a little van so we'll be, we'll be rolling in tomorrow are those 
and um, yeah, we hope you hope you make it down. Well, I think you'd be a lovely offset to the um, summer nats, which are on in Canberra at the moment. If you weren't aware, just giving you a heads up. <laughs> a lot of fossil fuel burning loud vehicles doing tire burnouts. <laughs> right, the summer national hot rod show, <laughs> and that'll all be downtown um, on Northbourne Avenue. So you'll be the perfect place for anyone that doesn't want to participate in that to go to Smithsonian. We'll Totally, totally. Now back to the the storytelling. Um, Journalism and and the mainstream media is really our our chief storyteller of our culture. Um, What went wrong there? Oh, look, don't ask me. I can tell you that one. Uh, You know, it's it's just, again, it's the individualism versus the collective. I don't know. You know, when I studied media, it was all about getting a job and, and making money and, you know, doing some reporting. But... Yeah, I don't know. I, I actually I didn't find that I had a passion in media. Brenner Brenner actually studied journalism as well, and you know we both got skills in storytelling from that. But as far as getting a job in the media goes, it, it felt more like a, a service than a than a job. And you know, for me, it didn't ever really kind of stick. But I don't know. There, there's a lot going on there, and and I think the fact that you know Rupert Murdoch's still around probably says a lot. <laughs> <laughs> But, um, you know, there is a lot of good stuff happening as well. And there's a lot of amazing journalists who are, are, are um, you know, reporting independently and, and working for, for papers like The Guardian and, you know, and, and papers that, and media outlets that are still, um, you know, kind of committed to, to being accurate. But everywhere you go, there's, there's something that's, you know... Well, yeah, I think that's, that's the thing about. you mentioned it, like the independent journalism, you know, or, um, you know, stations like us, we, we, you've got community radio because we're not beholden to anybody particular. We can platform um, in, individuals and organisations that we'd love to have, you know, getting a voice and that mainstream yeah. media may not see them with any value or may be told by their corporate sponsors that, no, we don't want that that organisation or individual to have more of a platform or a and voice. And you've, you've got the context as well and you've got the accountability. You know, I love community radio. We've, I've got a show on our little station in Denmark, WA, Denmark FM. And, you know, community radio and community newspapers and, and community-run media, the grassroots sort of mm. level, I think, is where it's at because, you know, you, you know the people generally, you know what they're talking about, you have a context of the bioregion and it gets harder as you get bigger. And again... You know, we need to know about world events. We need to stay in, informed about what's going on globally. But it gets really hard when you're not there and you're reliant on this mediated message, which is literally, you know, the, the point of the media. But we've and, seen a lot of... That... Go on, sorry, Charlie. Oh, I was going to say, when, when that's more and more being uh, becoming a part of the sort of clickbait, you know, engagement business model of social media then it becomes a real problem because cause articles and, and stories have to get more and more outrageous for people to click on them or engage with them. And if they're not engaging, then nobody reads them. So why would you bother writing them? And, and that, that's, that's the underlying issue with the media. I think it's not, it's not about the journalists. It's not about the storytelling. It's about this incentive to make things more and more outrageous and polarising so that people get clicks, so that the, the media outlets make money, which keeps them alive. You know, it's this system... Well, then it becomes entertainment and not information, right? Yeah, exactly. That, that's where it becomes just sort of tabloid entertainment rather than, than actual news. But, but you um, guys are doing this beautiful thing called edutainment. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Well, you know, turning information into songs and art is, is edutainment and it's, um, you know, it's both fun and informative, I hope. 
Brenda's a lot better at putting accurate information into the <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I, I mean, images are inherently shareable. And so, you know, for better or worse, a lot of us are on social media. And yes, they're big, evil um, multinational corporations, but they also have a lot of good. It brings communities together. It helps to beat isolation, like a farmer working out in the wheat belt in WA can feel connected to a community through their Instagram, through their Facebook. And the the, the research has, has looked into actually where our eyeballs move and where we focus more time on in images. Mm. Um so that's a, that's a reason that I make images in the way that I do. I use cartoons because parts of our brain light up when we see people that look like us but that are quite expressive. I use bright colours for similar reasons. The kind of text that I use, the amount of text that I use, the expression on the characters' faces, all of this is based on the best research in what actually um, brings out a response in people. And, you know, advertisers and marketers, use this research as well to sell products. I'm using this to, to tell a story about better futures that we could be moving towards and, and solutions to the current issues of our time. And, and, and the image itself, I can draw something in my living room, release it on Instagram, and within by the time I wake up the next morning, it could have been seen by literally millions of people. Now, that's a really powerful thing to be able globe. to do and something I don't take lightly. It's, it's quite a responsibility. Mm. What happens when that does occasionally happen? Oh, well, it's do you get like a mountain of feedback? Or? It's interesting, you know. I've found across all of the platforms that um, there's always a risk when so many people are seeing an image that you know you get trolled or that people negativity comes back your way. But it's hardly ever happened for me, uh, except when talking about issues of social justice and race, which is quite unfortunate that that brings out the worst in, um, in some people. But generally as a whole, people are just so hungry for new ways of seeing the issues of our time and new ways of really... Um, decoding and understanding, deepening their understanding to to this crazy world we're living in where we've got one foot in what's for dinner tonight and one foot in climate change and ecological collapse. So how can we navigate that world? That's what I really bring to my drawings. And, you know, we like, I'm just bemused by the whole spectacle that I can do a drawing and I'll go to someone's house and there it is on the fridge and then I go to the <laughs> share house in Melbourne and there it's stuck up on the back of their toilet door and someone's using it in a lecture and someone, you know, almost every day I'll get two or three emails saying, hey, can we use this in our preschool? Can we print out your image in um, our new book? Can we, can we print it out and hang it up at our community garden because we're trying to get more people here and we think your image would be good for our poster? And I always say yes, use it for free. That's why they're here. This is um, releasing these on social media because I want to strengthen the movement and just add that extra dimension. And if you get more people to your community garden working bee because of my work, that's that's what it's all about. That's what makes me so happy. Well, isn't that the way of music and art, right? Like, you know, if we are using words, you have to be able to have a fairly good understanding of that language uh, to really get the message clearly. But through music and art, that's that universal language, right? Yeah, and people bring to it what they have, uh, you know, and, and their experiences and their their emotions and their worldview as well. You know, that's the power of, of art is that it, it, it really leaves it open to the interpreter as to what they do with it as well. 
And, um, you know, it, it, you can really kind of, it, it's really just a signpost to something. It's not, it's not knowledge itself, but it's like, hey, look over there. Let's talk about that. What do you reckon? And it, it engages people in conversation and it creates connections. And, you know, for me, that's what it's all about. Like, the art is the glue that sort of holds culture together. And, uh, you know, it, it, it also has a huge power to, to stimulate, you know, education and, and deep conversation as well. But ultimately, the, at the core, it's about bringing people together to experience something. And that's something that you don't get, you know, like just just by doing something by yourself, like listening to a song by yourself or, or looking at a picture in your room. It, 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 it fulfills some of the function, but getting together and collectively you know, going to a concert or listening to, to music to a band or, you know, going to a gallery and looking at art together and, and discussing it and talking about it, that's where the richness comes in and, you know, it stimulates that sort of community response. So, yeah, we're pretty, we're pretty um, interested in, in doing more of that and kind of using art as activism, you know, to, to get people thinking and get people moving and get everyone active. So, um, yeah. And it's untapped potential, I think. Yeah. I mean, when you look at how powerful the art of Banksy was, which was essentially graffiti, right? Like it was a very <laughs> evolved form of graffiti. Oh, I love Banksy. But, you know, it's again, there's one image can be so powerful. Like every image has got, you know, like a, a statement, an essay-long statement behind it in, in, in mm. how it affects our brains, right? We can all yeah, see that image and become from different cultures and different parts of the world and really still understand the message very clearly. And, you know, the, the other side of music and art is I've, I've, I've been reading a lot of um, uh, an author called Lynn Kelly, who's a, 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 um, an academic from Victoria. I heard a, an interview with her on Radio National a couple of years ago about, um, about memory spaces. And in traditional cultures, you know, from, from Australian Aboriginal culture to, to actually like the Druids in, in ancient England, people have used physical space and stories and songs to actually store information. So to store cultural information, you know, educational knowledge, and then sing it back. I mean, that's mm. the concept of a song line is, is basically that. But, uh, I mean, in her book, she talks about how Stonehenge was actually this space for when the Druids stopped being so nomadic and they became, um, you know, agrarian sort of farming communities. And they needed a place to store their knowledge. So while they walked the land and they were moving around, you know, they could store it in the landscape and, you know, that hill there and this tree there and that had a song and this had a song and that's, that's where they remembered their, their, uh, their culture. But when it came to sta- staying still, they had to build these, um, you know, monoliths and, and stone structures to actually encode their knowledge. And then, and then that would invoke different songs or stories that then had the, uh, the details held within so you know, there's, there's this other function of art that i think isn't isn't really remembered so much in in western culture of using art as an actual memory space so you know when we when we listen to a song or we we look at an image we're having an experience and we're you know whatever whatever we're doing kind of kind of gets put into our memory of that song if you've ever you know if you've ever heard a song come on the radio um, and had this memory of whatever you were doing last time you heard the song just pop into your head. That's exactly what it is. Or if you forget something and then you walk back into the room that you were just in and you remember it, it's that concept that she's working with. And, you know, we're only just scratching the surface of that, but I'm, I'm really intrigued to explore more about the power of, of art to actually store 
our culture. And, and, and I mean, you know, we don't have to look very far. Like, people in this country still have, you know, the landscape that we live on in, in Australia has memories and culture stored in it that are tens of thousands of years old. And, uh, and a book that Lynn Kelly worked on with Margot Neal, who was a curator, a curator at the uh, National Museum, um, called Songlines for Power and Promise, goes into detail about, about how to actually use traditional methods of, um, you know, landscape and story and song to keep encoding knowledge. Like, it's not, a, it's not a dead historical thing. It's just something we need to talk with Indigenous people about and, and people who have the knowledge about how that can be used, you know, in a respectful and, and appropriate way that then builds connection to the landscape and, and sort of everything, everything that we sing and, and draw about for me seems to point back to that. You know, it's, it's, it's not just about building a connection to the landscape because it's nice. It's because it's actually essential to our cultural well-being and, and, and the, the planet as a whole. Yeah, so, so you know, that goes pretty pretty deep, but it's something yeah. that I think well, Tyson Tyson Younger Porter's brought out a book, Sand Talk, a couple of years ago, yeah. which is uh, very Fantastic. much along those lines as well. Yeah, yeah and, I and highly his work recommend is that, incredible. Deborah. As yeah. is Bruce Pascoe's Dark Emu, which yeah. you know has been a big inspiration for my work as well. Hmm. Well, I thought it was interesting too because um, I think Bruce Pascoe and his brother. Um, lived, or his, definitely his brother does, lived around um, Malakuta. And yeah. their approach to recovering from the bushfires was completely different to a lot of other communities. And um, we had a guest on the show who was someone who'd lost their home in Malakuta, and we chatted to her about she's a musician and how she was using music to heal a lot of the bushfire um, pain and um, grief and just finding a way to move through that. But in um, the documentary I saw about uh, the Malakuta community recovering, which was, I think, Bruce Pascoe was heavily involved and his brother, um, they basically said, look, we don't want the government's approach. We don't want what the government's offered us. It's not helping the community come back. And they sort of approached it for more of a cooperative stance. And they've made great leaps and bounds in recovery for that community, far more than, say, um, some of the other really deeply impacted communities have been able to. Because that they made it, the community made the decisions. The community basically said no to the government and said, we're going to do this our way. And, yeah. like, and I mean, it, it, you look at everything from, from Mallacoota to Lismore and, you know, the, the ability of communities to really just come to the forefront, you know, when, when it's needed, it just doesn't compare. And, you know, we need the resources that the government offers. We need that, that financial support and that, you know, that um, infrastructure. But... It needs to be in a way that empowers communities, not not gets in the way. It's a, it's a tricky one, you know, because yeah. we're in this wicked problem of of uh, top down politics and and you know big structures. But I and think people who are more interested in how that makes them look for the next election than actually fixing the problem, right? So the yeah. mo- the motivations. This is this is where I think you know a lot of the accountability stuff that doesn't happen with elected officials is that their motivations aren't altruistic enough to really be good leaders. Yeah, yeah, but then you look at what ha- what's happening with uh, the independents and, you know, places mm. like Indi where, yeah, you yeah. know, you have these bottom-up, grassroots, yeah, yeah. Yeah, community-led, yeah. 
yeah. um, representatives. You know, I think that's a really exciting Yeah, that is place. the way to go. And you saw how yeah. that came about, which was Sophie Mirabella didn't want to have a conversation with her community and yeah. that was the end of her career. But, um, exactly. <laughs> you know, like it's fabulous. It's a really powerful response, community response. I love that. I mean, we've just elected our first independent senator in the ACT, David Pocock, and he's actually delivering on his promises, you know. Not everybody agreed with his standpoint, um, but it was amazing to actually see somebody with integrity follow through after an election. Where yeah, so, that's all you want is someone who listens yeah. to the community, isn't it, and, and not just lobbyists. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so important, so important. But again, if your community's not organised, you can't do that. And if the community's not coherent, it can't be organised. Yeah. Yeah, there needs to be a lot more literacy around that. We, we've just started living in community, actually, in WA, and it's so interesting, um, you know, just trying to do community governance from a really grassroots level. We've um, we started implementing something called sociocracy, mm. which is uh, sort of like a d- direct democratic process that Brenna knows way more about than I do, but, um, yeah, do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, so it's interesting being here at Narara on the Central Coast, actually, mm, because we've learned a lot of what we know about sociocracy from their community, and their website has some great little intro to sociocracy and how it's used, um, little snippets on there. But it's basically, it's, there's two there's two parts of sociocracy. One is how you organise the, the people, the group, and it can be applied to a business, to a family, to any group of people, um, Intentional communities is where it really found its feet, but it's used in schools in Holland. Um, one of our neighbours actually grew up learning about sociocracy and using it in their schools to make decisions. So it involves people and kind of flattens that hierarchy, um, flattens the power inequality so that everybody has a chance to be heard and contribute without that leading then to endless meetings and <laughs> bureaucracy and not ever getting anywhere. So it, we apply it to our meetings and I'll tell you, in our community, when we first got there, there was yelling and people walking out and people <laughs> getting upset and then we have to go through everyone getting back together and being happy again and it was just draining and kind of scary and not much fun. And with this sociocratic process where everyone speaks in turn and if you can live with it, you go with it. You don't have to love it. So it's consent, not consensus. Mm. It's turned our meetings around and... I know people that use this in their business as well and they've had amazing results. And then we also kind of share decision-making. So um, Charlie's part of the group that manage the, the land and decisions that are to do with land, like when we, when we manage our, um, you know, regrade our roads in our community, that sort of stuff, if we put a new dam here or there. And I'm part of the group that manages community life. So when we have events... Um, how many times we do our meetings, uh, what's our visitors' policy, all that sort of stuff. And we can make decisions within our group without having to go through asking permission from every single person. So it's a much more agile system and then every decision we make is uploaded somewhere so that everyone can see and everyone still feels involved. So it's been a great system. It's one of several um, governance structures. Um, But, yeah, sociocracy is just – it's helping see sort of grassroots lefty movements to – to not only survive but thrive over the long term and not break down because people are hard to deal with. Well, it sounds like there's a need to teach this model as well, right? Like, yeah. You know, you're teaching a lot of other things, but this is probably the core of it, like, you know, how to be in community. Yeah, and a lot of communities start and end within a few years. Um, there's actually a book by... 
Christiana Leaf. <laughs> no, no, no. Diana Leaf Christian, sorry, <laughs> um, called Creating a Life Together. And what they did was they studied all of the intentional communities that they could find, hundreds and hundreds all over the world. And the ones that were the most successful um, longer term and had happy participants made up about 10% of the communities that they looked at. And they said, well, what do these ones have in common? And Diana herself lives in community. And they found that they had some sort of community governance model similar to sociocracy, so that consent instead of census. So not everybody has to be totally 100% on board. If they can live with it, it'll go ahead. Um, and there were a few other qualities as well. So it, there is some really interesting work in this space. I mean, Charlie and I are so into it. If people who live in community love people. So we're fascinated by people. It's, it's why it's so great playing gigs to people at places like um, this community here where we are today. You get to meet other people doing amazing things, hear their stories. And I think that's part of what really feeds us so community is not for everybody but it's definitely for us it keeps us interested it gives us something to talk about that's for sure but we've got a situation on the planet now where we've probably a lot of people feel and it and in some ways it actually is more divisive than it's ever been before and I think this is an antidote, what you guys are talking about, right? Like we've got a lot of um, agendas that are keeping us divided and intentionally dividing us and now we need something to bring us back together. Yeah, yeah and, and you know, a lot of that is thanks to social media algorithms and there's some great people doing really important and thankless work um, trying to get those algorithms turned around for good instead of evil because like Charlie was saying before, with the media, the more sort of divisive entertainment um, articles are the ones that people click on more often and so that just spirals down into negativity and at the end of the day it means somebody loses their relationship, somebody's not talking to their uncle or their cousin or their friend or their neighbour because we're put on these different teams and we're constantly encouraged to be at war with each other. We're found in our community, it's actually... By living in proximity and, and having that existing relationship, even if we have very different beliefs, we can still appreciate each other and get along because conflict at the end of the day is a difference of opinion with strong emotions attached. So our goal is to be able to have a difference of opinion without the strong emotions mm. um, and that's really what I'm striving for. In, you know, With all my friendships, it's such a divisive time, particularly the kind of sustainability lefty movements really been fractured um, by the vaccine anti-vaccine but also a few other issues we this is a time to come together we, we need to be able to have these differences of opinion without the strong emotion so that we can still go for the goal of making the planet a better place for us and for the other creatures that are living here because yeah, ultimately the, we're all going to be that, experiencing the result the of it picture, right we've got to <laughs> keep that goal in mind hmm. <laughs> Now, one thing I want to ask before we run out of time, which won't be too long, uh, each of you, who is your favourite storyteller, artist, activist? Well, besides Ooh. each other. <laughs> well, you know, I, one of my favourites, and, and I'm, I'm privileged to know him, is Costa Georgiatis. Uh -huh. we've, we've just been hanging out with him in Woodford, and, you know, that guy, <laughs> unstoppable, and... You know, from a from a from a pretty you know humble gardening show on Australian television, he's he's managed to inspire 
an entire generation of kids to connect back to the natural world and, 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 and to community. You know, he's such a community guy and everything he does is storytelling. You know, he, he might not be an artist or a musician, but he's, he's a storyteller and he uses his platform to just get that message out there every way that he possibly can. You know, every community you go to, everyone knows who Costa is and everyone loves him and he rocks up and everyone's just like, Costa! And he, he kind of greets people like they're his best mate wherever he goes. And I think, you know, that connection is at the heart of everything he does. We're, we're so just incredibly privileged to know this guy. Brennan's actually illustrated his book and, um, you know, probably probably hung out with him more than I have. But he got up with us at Woodford and played saxophone and, you know, rocked out on stage. And I just think he's a legend. I love it. He shared a story that he wasn't um, really good at sort of the mundane stuff at life. He was so busy being a creator and getting involved in stuff. He said, you know, I think he spent three years he didn't do the paperwork for his pass to get into the ABC. And finally they got oh. like a real sort of tough security guard that says, no, you're not going in one more day without doing your paperwork. Well, you know... Apparently Einstein couldn't tie his shoelaces either. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Brenna. I'd have to say oh, one of the most inspiring people for me at the moment is Rosemary Morrow, who you said you've had on this show. Mm-hmm. I've been teaching a fair bit with her lately. We teach a week-long train-the-trainers course for the permaculture design course. And so she's taking her years of experience in teaching all over the world in all sorts of conditions and really – the goal is to empower communities to teach themselves so that she can step back and, and, and the, the knowledge and the inspiration and the passion increases exponentially. So she, we actually just, she's almost 80, 79 and three quarters, and we taught her last course together in Western Australia a month ago. And we filmed the whole thing. So in about 10 years when it's all edited, because it was quite a lot of filming, um, we'll have that lovely record of her final course. So she's still going to be doing her wonderful work for permaculture for refugees. And they're translating a lot of her books into different languages so they can be photocopied and distributed in refugee camps where they're really needed. She only teaches in refugee camps when she's invited and she does it for free. So a real inspiration of mine. And when I'm 80, I hope to be as cool as Ro Morrow. (laughs) And you would never know that that's how old she was because her energy is just phenomenal. Oh, she looks about 62. It's amazing. She's my height. We're both really short and she's such a firecracker and so cheeky. So cheeky. She's like she's like a naughty nan, you know, one of those ones that would just smack you with a handbag when you weren't looking just to get back at you for something. I love that. So you mentioned you got the show tomorrow at Smith's. Um, at what time does it start and how can people get tickets? Can they just show up and get tickets at the door or what's the deal? Yeah, it's, uh, I think it's at 6 o'clock. Yep. Um, doors open at 5.30 and there are still tickets available from the website to go to formidablevegetable.com um, or just Smith's Alternative website and yeah, hopefully if you, if you want to just rock up there'll be some at the door but I can't guarantee because uh, yeah, things have been picking up since Woodford Great, so, great. Um, we're pretty lucky yeah, to have you in Canberra. Yeah, um, on our Facebook, venue, so. yeah, on our Facebook page about the show there's also links to that as well people can click on Awesome Fabulous. Oh, thanks so much for having us. No, it's been uh, it's been good fun. Um, so, well, the last thing I should say is you're looking for patrons. So if, if someone wanted to become a patron and support your music and your art and your work, how could they do that? Yeah, well, you know, when we're not touring, we're recording music, and we're you know, Brenna's always doing her artwork, and and um, you know, we're just sort of always chipping away 
to find more ways to get this message out there. So we've got a Patreon, which, you know, anyone can go and donate a dollar, two dollars a month to, you know, a cup of coffee a month, whatever they can afford to just keep things ticking along. And, and in, in, in exchange, we give little drops of, of uh, previews of albums and, you know, behind the scenes videos. And, and Brenna's got uh, her Patre- Patreon as well, which she'll actually do a, a watercolour artwork portrait of you if you donate. So she's a lot more generous than we are. Oh, wow. I just don't get time to do that kind I of stuff. I think we need to get one of Scotty. I think we should be donating Scotty. We get one of you. Yeah. One oh, right. great. Yeah. And <laughs> then... Um, right with your chicken or your garden. Yes. Um, oh, I'm going to get a goat. Yes. Um, so where, we can, where can we get your books and buy the CDs? Or they're not CDs anymore. They're um, uh, digital files, um, downloads. Um, do your workshops. Where can we find out all about those things? It's all at formidablevegetable.com. Or brennaquinlan.com. Brilliant. And uh, .au. Wonderful. Um, yeah, so, but you'll see Brenna's stuff all over Instagram as well. Just look up Brenna Quinlan and, you know, she's everywhere. But uh, we're, we're mostly She's omnipresent. Real <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, we'll see you guys tomorrow anyway. Yeah. Sounds yeah, fantastic. Thank life. you for joining us on the show. Charlie McGree and Brenna Quinlan from Formidable Vegetable Sound and System. It's a beautiful day out in the yard. We're gonna get out of play in the garden. There's plenty to do, but we're not gonna work too hard, and we're gonna have some fun with all our friends. Come on, let's grow, grow, do it. Everybody get up, get going, get outside, and get into it. Yeah, we're gonna work it out as we go, cause we've got so much food to grow, so we can share it round. You have been listening to an episode of A Line in the Sound, the podcast made by Co-ops, Commons and Communities Canberra, Co-Canberra for short, the New Economy Network of Australia, or NINA, and Radio Behind the Lines from Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Co-Canberra is working towards a cooperative Commonwealth. Our work builds strong communities, extensive commons, and a network of climate cooperatives. The New Economy Network of Australia is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. Behind the Lines has been running for well over 30 years on Canberra's oldest community radio station, 2XX. We do extended interviews with anyone who's trying to make the world a better place. All three are volunteer-run, so if you like what you heard on this episode, join us and become the media. To join up with the New Economy Network of Australia, sign up at neweconomy.org.au. To help out with Behind the Lines, or to help our editing team finish off a mountain of good Australian New Economy info, which includes editing training, contact us at behindthelines98.3 at gmail.com and see 2XXFM.org.au where you can subscribe, donate and volunteer to Australia's only alternative voice, Community Radio. If you're not in Canberra, there's definitely one near you. 
To help out with CoCambra, contact us at info at cocambra.org.au. That's C-O-C-A-N-B-E-R-R-A dot org dot A-U. Or come along to our monthly meetups, which we share with Nina Canberra Regional Hub, where we explore any and all aspects of the new economy. Find out what we're up to at cocambra.org.au. And finally, if you want to help fund me, Scotty, to go full-time with this and lots of other related work, look up LiberaPay, L-I-B-E-R-A-P-A-Y, and search for Community Supported Scotty. From there, you can find out about all my other projects and donate to help create a new, appropriate economy. Thanks.